This podcast is brought to you by the Stevens Center for Family Business, whose mission is to support the success of family business through the generations with education, networking, and collaboration. It's probably the most powerful thing in our lives is the ability to dream that vague notion. You don't know how to get there. You don't know how to do it, but you, you believe it could happen. So it's, it's human nature to do that. Well, when you have a dream, it's human nature to start seeking out the next clear step. And it, the how-to always shows itself. So what makes Michigan a great state? I'm glad you asked. My name is Cliff Dubinois, and I'm on a quest to answer that exact question. After 20 years, I've returned to my native Michigan, and I'm looking to reconnect with my home state. I'm talking to the people who are behind Michigan's great businesses and top destinations. The same people who work hard every day to make our lives a little bit brighter. And you, Michigander, are coming along for the ride. This is the Call of Leadership Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Call of Leadership Podcast. Today's guest founded the Deperian Corporation, and actually it started with an idea back in the 1970s when the founder, who is also an inventor, was looking for a way to protect pumps from the damage-causing debris that was found in stormwater. From there, he founded his corporation, and in 1985, the Depurion Corporation itself was actually established in Saginaw, Michigan. And uh, since then, under the leadership of the new CEO, the company has grown over a history of 25% a year, which is absolutely astounding. And I want to share with you that their first law of simplicity is two parts is one part too many. I love that. I absolutely love that. He is the author of the book, Dare to be Different, as well as the soon to be coming Misfit Millionaire book as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, the founder of the Dupurin Corporation. That would be Terry Dupurin. Terry, how are you? I'm good so far. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? I, um, I'm from Indian Town, which is uh, in Saginaw County. I grew up on a farm, and uh, I, uh, I really didn't want to be a farmer. I liked the mechanics of the farm, but I didn't like farming. So once I was 18, I left the farm and got a series of odd jobs. Right. And um, I finally got one where I cleaned parts for, for a machine builder. And just steam cleaner, and then they that turned into apprenticeship, and uh, I I just I started to understand mechanics much better. So, and then I went into drawing. I learned to read read prints and build machines, and then learned to draw them. I shipped jobs from B and K Tool to Wilson Engineering, so I'd be on a drawing board, learn how to draw, and then eventually I got my first patent and. It all begun there. Excellent. What I'd like to do is I would like to take a, a trip back because you and I were actually chatting before we hit the record button here. And I want to make sure that we capture these elements. So as a child, you were dyslexic. Yeah. I In most of my life, I couldn't read and write. And I can read a little better. In the last six years, I make myself read every day. So I'm getting a little better at it, but not great. And I can't write. I don't write. And so I dictate that. So what happened to me is in the, in the third grade, my third grade teacher asked me to stand in front of the class and read a first grade book, Dick and Jane. And I, and I could not read it. And um, 
then I knew there was something wrong with me because I couldn't do what everybody else is doing easily. And now I'm exposed to everybody in my world's in that room. And so it was the first time I ever felt inferior. I got sick to my stomach up there. And uh, it was a, a changing moment in my life. I knew something was wrong with me. So that year we just, we studied the inventors, Eli Whitney, Edison, Henry Ford, and they become my heroes. So the, I thought they only had to do one thing and they were rich and famous. And now as time went on, I found out it was more than one thing, but I, I started to pursue that dream. My dream was clear to me. I was going to be an inventor and make my living off my inventions. Well, I tore everything apart on the farm, couldn't get it back together, but I was learning, learning, slowly, slowly learning at great odds with my dad because he needed that stuff. So I, um, I eventually ended up, I think when I was 18 or 20, with a first patent. Right. And they had come in the mail. It's a U.S. patent office, Terry DuPerrin, inventor. Put me right back in the third grade. Oh, wow. So I, I remember committing to that dream. So now I'm saying, how does a third grade boy cause that future? Okay, how do you do that? And, it, and I end up creating a class around that as well. I have DuPerrin education, and it focuses, focuses on how creative people think. Right. And it doesn't matter what you create. If you, if you create a business, you're an entrepreneur. If you create a machine, you're an inventor, painting artist, book author. But it's the same thing. It's the same ability to bring somebody, something in the future that doesn't exist now. It's interesting that you, at that point in time in your life when you were the most vulnerable, that also, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's fate, but you start studying inventors. No, just mechanics, because I couldn't read the book. So I couldn't really study the inventor. Right. We just, they talked about it in school and they become my heroes. So I just believe they could do that one thing. I didn't know what it would be. So I just started to have at it. And uh, the dream is extremely powerful in our lives. So as I got studying that further, I'm thinking it's probably the most powerful thing in our lives is ability to dream. That vague notion, you don't know how to get there, you don't know how to do it, but you you believe it could happen. Right. And I think it's it's uh, it's not magic. Once you have a dream, it puts you in the inquiry. You're always looking for the next clear step to get to your dream. And I think we talked earlier, it's, it's, it's kind of like if you buy a, a new red car, you see red cars everywhere. Yeah. Because now you're aware of red cars. Yeah. Reticular activation. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's human nature to do that. Well, when you have a dream, it's human nature to start seeking out the next clear step and it, the how to always shows itself. It never not shows itself. So the, the dream has taken me a long ways, much way beyond my expectations. And basically all I do now is I have, I have two things. I don't know where, where to, I don't know what I'm supposed to say in this, but I was an atheist for a long time. And uh, eventually I yielded, I surrendered and asked God to come in my life. Well, nothing happened. So a year and a half later, I realized that I have a sense of gratitude I hadn't had before. Right. So uh, six months after that, I seen it. 
from that night forward, from the night of surrender, before that, life was defeating me. I become less able, less competent to take care of things. And then from that day forward, nothing's ever defeated me. Makes me squirm, but it doesn't defeat me. So something happened to me that night. That's clear to me. Right. So I don't, because I had not read the book, but I bit, bits and pieces I hear. But when I finally surrendered and come to my creator, he never said, shame on you. He just kind of tilt your head and say, look over here, Terry, I have something more for you. And then after that, I started to ask, if God was going to talk to me, how would that sound? Because I believe Christ's in Christ. And he said, you have a teacher and a guide, a Holy Spirit. And I said, well, how, do, how would that talk to you? And uh, I think I'm the author of Muddle and Confusion. It would, it would be clear. You know what you know. You trust your own mind. That is clear. I just do it. Okay, so I just head for the dream to take the next clear step. That's my act of faith. I don't need to know where the step's taking me. I just do it because it's clear. And then my trust of my of God is I don't ask for two steps. I don't go in the future. I have a really good imagination. I can scare the heck out of myself. So I don't go there. Right. So all of that got me where we are now. And to me, I you never you never arrive. I'm still on this journey. I don't know where it'll take me next. But I'm I'm open to go there. Beautiful. Now I understand why you're a writer. So let's go back because you were talking before about when you were somewhere, you know, 18, 20 years old, you got that official package from the U.S. Patent Office that said, you know, had your name on there, Terry Inventor. What did that feel like? Because this was like, to me, it seems like this was like the very first step for you to take to make your full dream to be a reality. So what was it like to actually hold that in your hand? That was exciting, and I got it. I got, because it put me back in the third grade, I got that kid caused this. And how did he do that? So when I was asked to teach senior engineers at the university, I was trying to figure out how that third grade boy did that. So I, I concluded it's in the way you think. That's the only difference. The, the people I was teaching at the university were smarter than me, way more educated than me, could read and write. <laughs> but the, the only difference could be is the way I think. I could get patents and I could start businesses, and they struggled with that. So I set out to find that difference. And then the whole class evolved around just the difference in the way we think. So the class basically now, I've had uh, about 3,000 people take it already. Beautiful. And about six professors from universities taking it. And if you look at who I am, a high school dropout that can't read and write, I have I have no, I cannot figure this out that I'm teaching at a university or that I have this company. Okay. The only thing I can come up with, the dream is really powerful. Well, I'm going to put this out there and I'm going to say that maybe that really isn't a requirement after all. Okay. So you've gotten a patent. Mm -hmm. You've gotten more patents. Yes. And you were talking about getting a patent and starting a business. So I know there's a couple of different avenues that you could have taken. You very really, you know, you could have gotten the patent and then licensed that out to yes. somebody else and then just collect a royalty check for the rest of your life, you know, play golf or whatever it is. But you opted to take that 
probably the hardest journey of anything, and that is to start a business. So why did you decide to do that? I make all my decisions based on who I am. I know who I am by the things I love and care about that matter to me, make a difference to me. Not all my faults. I don't look at those. I just look at the core. And so I got to patent and I got choices, probably hundreds of choices that you could do with that. But I had the dream, which was which was the lifestyle of Henry Ford, I think. Okay, which meant I had to start my own business. Interesting you pick Henry Ford, but okay, go. Yeah, I I kind of was fascinated with Henry Ford. He had a lot of flaws, but he had some. And the thing on my wall right now, it says, it was from Henry Ford. It says, I asked what they wanted. They they would have said a faster, faster horse. horses. Mm-hmm. And so most people can see what exists now. Henry could see beyond that. Okay, another way to do it. So most of us just deal with what's known, not what's unknown. He could do that. So I think that's what inventors do. They see beyond what's here now. And they bring something in the future that doesn't exist now. He probably was the key figure as my hero. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break to thank today's sponsor. The Stevens Center for Family Business exists to support the success of family business throughout the Great Lakes Bay region of Michigan. It provides a wealth of resources that family business owners and leaders can access to leverage the unique strengths inherent in their family enterprises. The center provides educational opportunities about managing the often complicated combination of family and business and hosts networking events where family business leaders can share their experiences and learn from one another. Drawing on experts from around the country, the center focuses on topics and issues that are unique to family business. It emphasizes best practices to achieve optimum business results while maintaining family harmony. With programs on succession planning, preparing the next generation, communication and conflict resolution, governance, family dynamics, policy development, company culture, and many more, the Stevens Center for Family Business probes subjects that are vital to family-owned enterprises. Regardless of the size of the family business or the number of years in its history, the Stevens Center for Family Business can be a valuable resource for helping to secure the ongoing legacy of multi-generational family businesses. The Stevens Center for Family Business, where networking and knowledge meet to support the success of family-owned companies, both in their business pursuits and their family relationships. For more information, please go to the website at svsu.edu backslash Stevens Center for Family Business or contact me, Casey Stevens, Membership Coordinator, at 989-964-2776. And now, back to the show. And we're actually going to circle back to that, because I already know the end of the story. Okay. But I want to make sure we lay it out for the audience, because this really is intriguing. So you go out there, you start your business, right? The Praying Corporation is out there, you've incorporated, you know, you're getting clients, the business is making money, but it was not all sunshine and rainbows, the end of the story. There was a handful of times you really struggled. Oh, constantly. Yes. Yeah. The first three years, 
I carried a pup tent in my trunk because I would make a sales call and I couldn't afford a hotel and gas. So I just sleep in a tent at night and save the money for gas. The thing is, once once you have a dream, there's no work in it. Okay? There was it did not I love my life. I don't think I've worked in fifty years. But you when you're in the pursuit of a dream, it's not a straight road. Okay, it's a series of fails, failures and successes. You pretty much build on the failures. Right. So that I see failure as a benefit, not anything else. A, a, a failure is a, don't go that way, go this way. Okay, so that's all it was. So it didn't didn't have the impact of failure. I, and I can't say I didn't feel it. I feel failure. I feel the emotional impact of that. I think it's nobody's comfortable, likes it, but I accept it as a, as a benefit. So, in the early days, there was a lot of a lot of things I come up with that didn't sell, and so I quit doing that. And I got patents that didn't sell. Right. So, I uh, your pursuit of the journey is greater than the failure of the things you try. Right. You know. So once you have you keep your eye on the dream. In fact, there's only one thing I know that can kill a dream, and that's that it loses presence in your mind, then it's dead. But as long as that dream's alive, you'll start seeing ways to get there. Well, it's not a straight line. Oh, you know, well, yes, and, that's true. <laughs> see, I think every, my, you know, family life's messy, business is messy, life is messy. <laughs> okay, and I don't have an expectation that it would be different than that. I think for a long time I hid that I was dyslexic, that I couldn't read and write. Most time I didn't know, didn't have a name for it. It was it, just dumb. Right. Okay, so you want to hide that and you protect that. And one day I decided that I had to quit doing that. Okay, this is what I am. This, this is what I'm going to go through life in. And now I see it as a gift. At first it was a, a detriment. So I think once I started to see my life, these things I have as a gift, not not a penalty. To give you an example, in school, I have I I question everything and I analyze everything. So the I would be asked a question and they'd say, "Well, he probably was," and I'm saying, "He's probably dead." I'm analyzing the whole question. Well, by the time I get ready to answer it, there are three questions now. So the class seems like right. it's going really, really fast to me. So it really hindered me in school, but when it comes to inventing uh, solving a problem, it was an asset. So the very thing that haunted me become my biggest asset. So I'm grateful for it now, but I wasn't most of my life. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Well, it does. So, you know, let me ask you this question. Let's put it in context here. Would you give up the life that you have now? Oh, I love my life. No. So then if we could go back in time, right, when yeah. Terry is being formed, yep. and if we took away this gift of dyslexia, would you have the same life? No. No, I'd probably have a job someplace. You know, now I think the worst thing that could happen to me is I have to get a job. So I love the lifestyle. I love the, the challenge. You're fully alive in this game. Yes, you are. You know, so it, it doesn't have to go smooth. You don't expect it to go smooth. I think that I would just get a job and 
like most everybody else. But I think this pushed me out of that. Now, I was asked by, I was working on a first book called A Different Ability with a professor, a Lowell Plager. And he had, he was a principal of schools that teach handicapped people. And so I, I was going to schools talking to kids on the short bus. And, and uh, I thought, what if I could leave them a book? So I worked with him on that. And the first question he asked me is, most kids that have what you have, crawl in the corner. They never do anything with their lives. What made you think you could do anything? Good question. Okay. So I, I took me a month to answer that. And my father and I didn't get along very well. He's a hot headed Frenchman and he swears a lot and he's mad at me a lot. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, 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 I would kind of avoid him because he was scary to me, but, but he did never let me off the hook. He never let me not run. He always put me back on the tractor. Okay. No matter what I screwed up, this is how you do it. You're going to do this. Right. Well, even though it was harsh, the message sent was you can do this. Okay. So every time I mess up, never got me off the hook. Okay. He would just holler and swear at me and say, this is how you do it. Do it. I didn't know it was a gift until I started working that book. And it is a thing that made me believe I could do something because he reinforced that every time. And if you take a parent that says, say, you ask Johnny to take out the trash and one parent, will, he spills it all over the kitchen floor. You say, I know you can do this, Johnny, but I'll, I'll take the trash out from now on. Message sent, you can't even take out the trash. Where my father would start screaming at me and say, you grab the basket like this, you pick up this mess and you do this every day. Right. Okay, so you never let me off the hook. Message sent is you can do this. So that was the gift. And I didn't realize it for a long time that my father gave me that gift. Most of the time I was just afraid of him. I stayed away from him. <laughs> but he gave me a gift. So that's kind of where it came from, the belief that I could do something. What I would like to do is we talked briefly about the struggles that you had with your corporation and you kept going, you kept plugging. And then at some point you decided to hire a CEO to yeah. come in and run the company. I'm a really lousy manager. Okay. I can invent, I can create companies, but I can't manage them. So I brought in Tammy, who's my partner, who's just the opposite of me, my oldest daughter. I mean, we are total opposite. She's a terrific manager. And once we come together, this whole company really started to grow. Yes, it did. 25% year over year. Yeah. And it's a lot because of the combination between the two of us. So I was trying to, I have a theory about that. I have a theory about everything. But I'm not surprised. <laughs> I think every, every, everybody's oblong. You know, you're really good at this out here and you're not so good at this. So your ability to influence the world it kind of shrinks between your thicks and thins, what you're good at, what you're not. But when I brought Tammy into the business, she's just the opposite of me. She's oblong, you know, completely opposite of me. So if you do a graph, she would be opposite. And she has the same thing. She's really good at this management, not so good at the creative stuff. She's good at creative management, but not create machines and businesses. But you can manage them. So I thought it was like a catalyst. Once we both decided to work on what we do. 
At first, we didn't get along very well because we're so opposite. But then I come to a point where I developed a profound respect for what she brought to the table, and she did for me too, and everything took off. So I think this is like a catalyst. Your, your thicks and thins shrink us both down, but once she starts working only in her strength and me only in my strength, it just expanded. It became very, very dynamic, and we built this business up to where it is where now we have a president runs it. And he's really good at what he does. So I everything I do, I have to find a manager. Right now, I am, I'm a silent partner for a lot of young entrepreneurs to start business. So I got 10 different businesses. Beautiful. And, uh, but I couldn't, once I got a group of them, I couldn't manage the group. So I hired Andrea to manage. I, I created TLD Holdings. And all these companies are part of TLD Holdings, and she manages it, and she does the marketing sales for it. So it's good to know what you're not. You know, and it's interesting because my follow-up question to that is, is a lot of the times ego becomes part of the equation. And so, you know, you're struggling with your business. You really want it to go. I know a lot of people out there that would just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. But you had the presence of mind to think, you know what, maybe this isn't my strength. Maybe I should get somebody else in here to do this. And that's when Tammy comes on board. Yeah. Well, I'm a slow learner because at that time I lost everything I had plus a million bucks I didn't have. Wow. Okay. Now you, now you start to decide why. And so I kind of drew a graph and I said I started here. And then I did uh, making some money, got a good job. I got a new idea, and I spent too much money too fast. And pretty soon I'm in trouble again. Then I'm back up again. I'm doing $5 million projects. Then I'm back down again. And then as on my way down again, I seen it. Every one of those things were bad management, bad choices, not manage money very well. So once I seen it, then I could say, yep, there he is. You'll be doing this the rest of your life without her. And that line just straightened out and we started growing. So you got to fill in the, the blanks. You got to fill in what you're not. And it, the expectation that you have to know everything, you really don't. You only have to know a few of the right things that you can hang on. So I have to share this with you because this has been very interesting to to listen to you. You were emulating Henry Ford in so many powerful ways because I have actually studied Henry Ford at great lengths. Yes, I have. And what I'm hearing is, and I, I want to share this story with the audience because this is powerful. And I know that you, you probably have heard this story before. So back in the day, you know, Henry Ford is, you know, sitting at top of the world. And there was a reporter from a local paper that was publishing articles about how stupid Henry Ford was and how he didn't know anything. And so Henry Ford invited him to his office. So this reporter came in the office and sat down and Henry Ford said, ask me any question that you want and I will get you an answer. So the reporter is like all excited, right? I'm going to make Henry Ford look stupid. So he would fire a question to Henry Ford. Henry Ford would pick up the phone, make a phone call. Somebody would come in the office with the answer and then leave. So then he would ask the reporter, what's your next question? Any question, any topic that you got. Moral of the story is that I found powerful about that is the fact that you don't have to know everything. 
you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but if you surround yourself with the right people, like you're talking about before your dreams just become that much closer. So for you, you know, having that, being able to take your ego out of the equation and say, you know what, Tammy's better at this than I am. Just like with all these businesses, you were talking about TLD and how you got all these other corporations in there. You couldn't manage it all. So you brought somebody in to be able to do that for you. Now you're being able to live your dream and be able to really impact and influence a lot of people because you know who to go to, to get the answers. Like you talked about before, fill in the blanks. Yeah. I, I can remember when I learned it, I was, I, I had built a machine at the company I served apprenticeship and I had to go into the field and set it up at Ford Sterling plant, which is the biggest plant under one roof at the time. And I threw up twice on the way there because <laughs> wow. I thought I'd, I'd never be able to fill, fill the paperwork to get in the plant. So I'm walking in there and kind of terrified that I cannot do that. I knew the machine, but I didn't know how to fill the paper out. So I just bent my hand and said, I injured my hand. Would you fill that out for me? And she did. Problem solved. Okay. There's other solutions. Yes. <laughs> when you can't do what everybody does easier, it. Uh, I don't know what it is about it, but uh, you're more open to trust that you in what you need outside of yourself. But it took an extreme for me to really figure out, I am really bad at this. Uh, so that's when Tammy come in. And so that this what you see now is a result of those decisions that, that made all the difference. So I think that if I, I look at my past, the people I needed along the way showed up. Yes. And I don't understand that, but they always showed up. And so that some people come into your life for a short time and some for a longer time. So now I'm trying to do a, a club called One Degree. I meet you, you will change my life at least one degree. Met my wife, change 180 degrees. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so but we will affect each other's lives. So I want to start a club where we have a lot of people who are up to something. I love to be around people up to something. You're one of them. So we kind of support each other. So instead of having a speaker and a little wine and cheese, it'd be mostly wine and cheese. It'd be mostly, let's get to know everybody. Let's get a culture. And DuParent Corporation, we have a very unique culture. When you, when we hire anybody in any position, everybody gets under them. Everybody does everything they can to get them to succeed. I just talked to a couple of new employees, been here six months. They're waiting for the ax to fall. But it's not going to, because the companies they come from is, I make you look bad, I look good, and all that goes on. Oh, yeah. We, okay. Yep. We, we I know exactly what it. you're talking about. Yep. But what we try and teach people is how to reinvent themselves or departments. To, and once you reinvent your department, then you own it, and the culture changes. You're not threatened by somebody coming in. And if you think about it, the person doing the job, is the most equipped to figure out how to make it better. As long as you have a management that supports that, we allow a lot of, you can fail, you know. Right. So I'm off on a tangent, tension span. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. I've been enjoying this. What I would like to do is, because your company's established, it's under good management. You guys are seeing phenomenal growth, phenomenal growth. 
good chance we'll double next year. Just, you know, you go throw that out there. Just going to double next year. We're, we're cool with that. Yes. Now, at at some point, and I, and I know, like I said, I already know the end of the story. So you've got an opportunity now to to teach. Yeah. You know, the kid that didn't graduate high school, yeah. that struggled with reading and writing their entire life, you're now being invited to the university to be able to teach. Why don't you share a little bit about what that is and what you're what you're teaching? My whole focus was how that third grade boy caused that future. Right. So I'm I'm in the class. I'm not I have I have two things that got me through, two thoughts. One is never be the one that limits you. Okay. Truth. I would rather fail than not try. Yes. And the other one was success has nothing to do with what you're not, run with what you got. Right. I could probably fill this building with volumes all I'm not. Why would I go there? So when I was asked to teach the class, I'd never been to university before. I didn't really know what they did there. I had an image, and it didn't turn out like I thought. But it was, I remember, never be the one that limits you. My chances of failure was really high. But uh, first day was awful. I put everybody in a coma in about 10 minutes. And then I talked to a real teacher, and she told me what's important. Do you know where the students are at? So then I drew that on the board. And then little by little by little, the class started to show itself. And I taught there for three years. Then I thought, if you're gonna if you're gonna teach uh, entrepreneurship, you ought to be able to start your own school. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had about three thousand people go through that, and and professor in university have taken it. And uh, I talk about these things, and I have no explanation as to the why of it. Yes, you know, I know. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So it's just there, and and I think that I was willing to fail. I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to throw me out without trying before they throw me out. I'm going to throw me out first. So I, and I think because of the dyslexic problems, I've, I've learned to feel the pain of failure, but not control me. Yep. If, so you're talking to a one case study here. So they, they're very unreliable one case studies because mostly I just learned from experience. Well, you bring up a good point when you say learn from experience, because, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that when it comes to failure, first off, I think that there's a real stigma when it comes to it. And then second off is, is that we're raised in an environment where, where failure is punishment. You fail a test, right? That's just the way it is. If you don't get enough questions right, you fail the test. Failing is bad. You're not going to get your diploma or whatever that is. I know for me personally, it took me a long time before I could actually sit down and say to myself, you know what? I would rather try and fail than not do anything. And that means that how you look at failure, the entire dynamic of it changes. And then being able to sit there and say, okay, so I failed. What's the lesson to be learned from this that I can take forward? So next time, if I fail, I'll fail better. That one thought frees you yes okay the the i think most of us do not want to live where it's familiar and known and once you step out of that once you do what you just said you're going to do open to failure 
Now you're on this blank sheet of paper where there, there's the, all the unknowns are there. Right. It's intangible, all the things there, and it's uncertain. And so once you start that direction where you're not just trying to be ordinary, you you end up in this other world, which is very rich and rewarding, but it has pain. That's right. It's messy. But then I think you could sit on your couch the rest of your life. Pain of being human will find you. Okay. So why not play the game? You know, that exactly. All out. Yes. I love that. Why not play the game? In, in addition to teaching your gift of dyslexia, you publish books and you've got a new one coming out. The misfit millionaire. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit, <laughs> a little bit about being an author. I, uh, I, I hired a writer to write it. And then I, he wrote legacy books and I thought I didn't, I didn't really want a legacy book. I would like to have a book for my great, great grandfather or grandmother, the life and times a book. Right. And I thought I would really value that. So I thought I'll do that for my grandkids. So I started the book, and then I started with as far back as I could remember. So The Misfit Millionaire, the thing that bothers me about that title, the author did some studies, and said, that's what we should call it, and I'm sorry, is that money has never been my motivator. I'm not motivated to this day by money. To me, Money comes and goes. My attitude towards money is the same as it is in everything. Anything you hold too tight owns you. You know, even your health, if you're all about your health, it owns you. So I tell my doctor, you keep me alive, I'm going to go about the business of living. So I think that it's, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about uh, you publishing books. Okay. And you- so, the, so the book is all about that. Well, my kids are going to be shocked when they read this thing because it's almost done. So... The books I wanted, I always had a purpose in mind for the books. One is about the class. Then the fourth book is being worked on, almost done. And it's called Glimpses of God. And I did, I did a talk at Release Terrain, and I didn't know what was expected of me. So I thought I would just talk about those little events in your life that shift you. Oh, my God, that's beautiful. And I called it Glimpses of God. Well, it sounds like I'd seen them. It was just awarenesses. Right. So the professor at the university who wants to do this book said, uh, let's call it Glimpses God's Grace. Well, then he adds grace, and I don't know what grace is, so I ask around, and grace is freely given, undeserved, unearned. So I'm saying, all right, when did I get grace? You know, in the book, I talked about my surrender like I got grace then. I thought, I can't tell God when to give me grace. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've had it since conception. As I look back, I can see the hand of God, even when I didn't recognize him. I think, so the book is around those things that happen that shift your life. And uh, losing everything was a big shift. And what happened there is I got really depressed, couldn't get out of bed. Didn't have any idea how to get out of this hole I was in. And that was before Tammy come. And I'm laying in bed saying, I got nothing. I don't have another idea. I just lay here, don't know what to do if I got up. And I get this one very clear thought. 
And it was, do only what's clear. So I thought, pretty clear to get out of bed. <laughs> You're right. Pretty clear to take a shower, bed in a while. Pretty clear to go to the office. Two years later, I didn't even have a car payment. I did not mastermind my way out of that. I just one clear thought at a time, and I've been living that way ever since. I Beautiful. just look for the clear thought. So this is where it's taken me. I don't really care where it takes me. Now, you know, I, it's, it's a fun journey. You know, I'm really, I love the lifestyle. So that book is about those changes in your life. And there was several of them that shifted. Um, so I don't know a lot. I'm talking about uh, God and Christ. I don't know a lot. Just that it's, it's not a philosophy. Something happened to me. Okay, it changed. Nothing defeated me. I didn't do that. Right. I can't talk about that. Right. Uh, because I don't know a lot about it. I just know how it affected me. For our audience, we're going to have the links to these books and the social profiles and the show notes down below. Terry, I would like to ask one parting question of you. Yes. And that's for our audience that's listening. If you could give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Pursue your dreams. The dash on your tombstone's really short. Game on. <laughs> Beautiful. Absolutely love that. Terry, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I've, I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Before you go, I want to invite you to the Call of Leadership community. Here you can get access to some really great behind-the-scenes goodness like upcoming guests, interviews, but you can also get thoughts from these interviews as well as actionable tips that you just will not find anywhere else. Plus, you can stay current with what's going on, not only with this community, but with this awesome show, because there's some good stuff that's coming. Join us by going to calloflearship.com slash email. Once again, that's calloflearship.com slash email. And I'll catch you in the next episode.